0: That's put on my Christmas list, Carla. I'd like (laughs) a cerulean, a a lumpy cerulean sweater.
1: I'll knit you a lumpy cerulean blue sweater. You're the best. Yeah.
0: Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies.
1: With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers.
0: Welcome to today's show. We are talking about the 2006 beloved film, The Devil Wears Prada.
1: I can't believe this movie came out in 2006. That feels like such a long time ago. And it still feels so current and recent in my memory. And just one of those movies that's like, I don't know, it's just always on a lot of like streaming platforms, before streaming platforms it was on TV all the time. So yeah, it just feels so fresh in my memory.
0: Yeah, I think it holds up today. Uh, certainly the cell phones that they were using in the movie, maybe not so much. But That's the general <laughs> the general premise and plot, I think it works well today. It's not an action movie. I don't know that there's... It's not like the graphics should have gotten a whole lot better.
1: Yeah, it totally holds up. You're right, the cell phone's dated. But pretty much nothing else about it feels very dated. It's still very current today.
0: Well, it was a successful film. I think it grossed over $300 million at the box office on a budget of a little over $40 million bucks, And... It had a bunch of stars in it. Holy cow. Yeah. Uh, So obviously Meryl Streep plays the devil. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A.K.A.
1: Miranda Priestley.
0: Yes. And she got an Oscar nomination for her role in this. Now, it's basically an obligatory thing every year for Meryl Streep to get an Oscar (laughs) nomination. But hey, this is the one for 2006.
1: Yeah. And I do feel like she's one of those actors that really earns all of her Oscar nominations. They're not like... I mean, they don't really hand them out like candy to anyone, except arguably her. But like... She, she earns those. Oh,
0: she does an amazing job. I, just No doubt. She's a legend. And it turns out that she was basically the only woman that they looked at for that part. Like the project didn't get off the ground until she said she was going to go do it.
1: Yeah, I did read that they considered Glenn Close kind of early on. Oh, give me a break. But she said she didn't want to do it like from the get-go because she was tired of playing the villain. So yeah, Glenn Close was out for, like pretty early which I guess I get. I do associate her with only being the villain. Like the only thing I can think of where she wasn't the villain was the movie The Natural where her role was pretty minor. <laughs> so maybe a well, good call by here.
0: <laughs> the movie also starred Anne Hathaway and then had like secondary stars of Emily Blunt and Stanley Tucci. Yeah. So huge baller cast and they worked well together. I read that they really became pretty good friends on set. Maybe they could tell they were doing something pretty special. Stanley Tucci didn't get added until a couple of days before filming started, but the rest of them, I think they could tell they had something pretty good on their hands.
1: Yeah, I think Anne Hathaway and Emily Blunt are very good friends in real life today. And Stanley Tucci is now married to Emily Blunt's sister. So they are now brother and sister-in-law, which is kind of fun.
0: Yeah, I read that Emily Blunt invited them all to her wedding, to John Krasinski in, I think, 2010. And Stanley Tucci's first wife had just died a couple of years before that, after a long battle with cancer. And... I believe he had met uh, Felicity Blunt, Emily's sister, before then. But the wedding, I think, is where they spent their first time really interacting with each other in a meaningful way. And, well, it led to a second marriage.
1: So I did read that Meryl Streep almost walked away from this iconic role because they offered her so little money at the outset. So initially she was offered $2 million and she felt like that was just almost insulting, like way too little So they ended up doubling it to four and she felt like that was pretty reasonable. Um, So she obviously ended up doing the role. Um, I think Anne Hathaway only made $1 million for her role, which I mean, it's easy to see like Meryl Streep had a lot more clout than Anne Hathaway did, certainly at at that time. But um, yeah, it's kind of crazy that Anne Hathaway was the star. I don't
0: know. I think Meryl Streep was really the star here. And Stanley Tucci, let's give him some credit. <laughs> but no, Meryl Streep was definitely the star. Anne Hathaway, I read that they auditioned a bunch of people for her role. Like, I think Rachel McAdams, they wanted her to do it for a little while. There were a few other people that they looked at that could have been great. And Anne Hathaway, I read that when she was in the interview room, somebody had a little thing on their desk that had some sand in it, and she traced the words, hire me in the <laughs> sand in her interview in one of her early you know, talks about the movie.
1: That's funny. Yeah, I think they offered the role to Rachel McAdams three separate times. They really, really wanted her That's to be so their, fetch. their Andy Sachs. Yeah, but she just didn't see herself doing it, I guess. So she walked away from it. I do think Rachel McAdams could have done a good job, but Anne Hathaway does a fantastic job in this role. So I'm glad the stars aligned and, and we got her in there. So let's go ahead and jump into a brief plot summary of the movie. So Anne Hathaway plays a character named Andy Sex. She is very young, fresh out of college, and she wants to be a journalist. She's just graduated, I think, from Northwestern University with a degree in journalism, I think. And she is having trouble finding work, like, right out of college, which doesn't shock me. It's definitely a difficult career to make it in. But she's living in New York City. I guess that's where she thought she could have the best luck. Uh, Her boyfriend is also in New York City, so I'm sure that's a factor of why she wants to to be there as well. But she apparently has applied to dozens and dozens of places and hasn't gotten any luck. One of the places she applies is Runway Magazine, which is like a clear fictional stand-in for Vogue Magazine. And it's... uh, for a job as Miranda Priestly's assistant. Miranda Priestly is the editor-in-chief of Vogue. She totally runs the show. Runway. Runway, sorry. Uh, and yeah, she just, just like the head honcho at Runway slash Vogue. Um, and she ends up getting the job despite not being into fashion at all. And the rest of the movie is basically just about her Trials and Tribulations, working for the dreaded Miranda Priestly, who is definitely in the running for the world's worst boss. So yeah, Miranda Priestly is um, also kind of a fictional analog for Anna Winter, who is the real-life editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine, and this is another fun fact. I did read that the production team had a really difficult time getting designers to work with them getting locations to agree that they could film there because Anna winter is just this force of nature. Everyone knows who she is in New York and in the fashion industry in general. And she is just like sort of beloved, but also mostly hated and feared. I mean, what
0: kind of a jerk do you have to be if everyone's afraid to make a movie that is sort of loosely based on you? Yeah. And because of how terrible you are? Yeah. Right? I mean, wow, that's that's insane. I, I think I read that when Meryl Streep signed on, that really helped a lot to get some people uh, interested in, in doing the project because so many folks were just terrified about the blowback they would have from somehow doing this piece that seemed like a hit job on this Vogue lady.
1: Yeah, well, the movie is based on a novel that came out in 2003 by a woman named Lauren Weissenberger, something like that. Um, who had actually worked as Anna Winter's assistant at Vogue in exactly the same role that Andy has for Miranda Priestley in the movie, and had kind of a difficult experience there, not completely unlike what we see in the book and in the film. So it was clear that this was this was not unrelated to Anna Winter. How much of it is real and how much of it is fiction is probably something that only a handful of people in the world know for sure but um, it's clearly closely associated with Anna Winter and Vogue in real life. So I think we can go ahead and dive into our first clip. That is uh, one of the more iconic exchanges in the movie. So this is Andy Sachs coming to interview with Miranda Priestly, and we hear um, Miranda kind of throwing some difficult questions Andy's way.
2: Who are you? Uh, my name is Andy Sachs. I recently graduated from Northwestern University. And what are you doing here? <clears throat> well, I think I could do a good job as your assistant. And, um... Yeah, I came to New York to be a journalist and uh, sent letters out everywhere and then finally got a call from Elias Clark and met with Sherry up at Human Resources and basically it's this or auto universe. So you don't read Runway? Uh, no. And before today, you had never heard of me. No. And you have no style or sense of fashion. Well, um, I think that depends on
1: what you're- No, no. That wasn't a question. <laughs> oh boy. So I think the first thing to talk about here in the context of like careers and how to do well in a career is was this job a good idea for Andy Sachs to be taking in the first place
0: I don't think so I don't get it okay she is applying for a job as an assistant to some chief editor of a popular magazine but she wants to be a journalist she says very clearly I want to be a journalist An assistant and a journalist are totally different roles. I don't understand how this is going to help her become a better communicator of information to other people, which is what journalists do, right? They write pieces or they do broadcast journalism where they communicate a message over video to folks. As an assistant, her job, as we see in the movie, is to get her coffee and run her errands and drop off the book at her house and... Make sure that the skirts show up at the right time for the photo shoot and other little details like that. What in the world do those skills have to do at all with being able to take a story, understand its details, pull it all together and have something communicable to the rest of the world?
1: So in a sense, I very much agree with you. And there's a scene in the movie where Andy is talking to her dad and he is basically giving her the same speech that you just gave me. Um, And he's like, "What? you know, you want to be a writer, you're not doing any writing. And she kind of jokes back, hey, I wrote you emails. like, But she, she really isn't doing any writing. That's clear. She doesn't have time to. She works, I'm going to say, somewhere in the realm of like 70 or 80 hours a week. Yeah, you're right. Just like running errands. So she is not honing her craft at all. And she does not have any free time in which to hone her craft, as best we can tell. However, I don't think this is such a bad career move for her. In real life, Anna Winter and in the movie, the fictional Miranda Priestley, they are represented as having like the best of the best when it comes to contacts, networks within all kinds of powerful industries, including print journalism and publishing in general. So she is going to be meeting a lot of really, really high powered people. And in fact, we do see that happening in the movie. She friends. Like a pretty high-powered writer, to the point that she gets somebody to get her the unpublished Harry Potter <laughs> manuscript. If that's not a sign that you don't that you've got your tentacles like deep into the publishing world, I don't know what is. So it seems very useful to her. And even if she's giving up a year of spending time honing her craft, there's no question that careers have a lot to do with who you know. And she is making really, really superb contacts. So I don't think it's a waste of her time at all. I think it actually makes a lot of sense.
0: There's no doubt that her role as Miranda Priestley's assistant would introduce her to some serious power brokers and get her name out there and make it easier for her to form connections, to do other things. But we have to step back and ask ourselves, what is it that she actually wants to do with her life? Does she want to start her own magazine? Does she want to go make her own journalistic uh, medium that she's going to go communicate with the public through? Like, I don't think that's what she really wants to be. I think she wants to be a writer or a broadcast journalist. And I don't know how knowing those people is really going to help her. I think in the movie, they said she won some sort of award when she was at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. She brings like some of the stuff she's written, some of the stories she she did a series on to somebody else to look at. And it you know gets their attention. They think she did a good job why can't she go take those skills and go directly into becoming a writer or someone who is more closely related to the journalism business? Sure. She's making connections, but aren't those connections only going to give her the ability to get that same entry level job unless she wants to somehow bypass that. Maybe she doesn't want to be a true journalist per se, but she wants to be an editor or a curator of what other journalists are putting together.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only information we really have is that she says she wants to be a journalist. But I guess it boils down to the opportunities that she has on her plate, right? Like she makes that maybe a joke, maybe not. Basically, it's this or auto Universe. Now, I do think one thing that's really important to talk about is that she seems very stuck on the idea of staying in New York City. I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that her pretty serious boyfriend is there, she seems to have friends in New York City, um, so maybe that's why she seems very tied to that location. But if you want to do something for a living that's really tough to break into, and I think the journalism industry definitely fits that bill, I think you've got to be flexible on your location. I mean, the United States is quite large, and she could certainly find something in the journalism industry if she was willing to go wherever and start from you know the lowest of the low positions. So,
0: but so I'm not into journalism. I don't know where these opportunities really exist. Let's assume she wants to work for some sort of periodical other than a daily newspaper. If that's what you want to do, I would guess that the places to do that are going to be what New York, DC, maybe LA, maybe Chicago, like she is in one of the huge hubs. If she can't find a job in New York with her skills and qualifications is she really going to be able to find one somewhere else? I, I, I think it's silly, like it's a false premise that she couldn't find a job as a writer at one of these locations in New York. There should have been something out there that would have been good for her.
1: I don't know. I think you're underestimating how tough the journalism industry is. And I say that as someone who's never been in the journalism industry, but certainly from an outsider's perspective, my general perception is that it's a really tough gig to land. And she probably didn't want to work at, you know, some super low-end crappy place that would not look good on a resume.
0: Garly, you may be right. The The big boys in New York and D.C. may not hire someone who don't have experience working in a smaller city's journalism outfit or some locally distributed magazine or, or something along those lines. But my goodness, that if that's the path she wanted to go down, why did she move to New York in the first place? Like That seems silly. Surely someone who was a good enough writer and good enough at digging into the news, like she was a researcher, she she... Uncovered some sort of shocking information, I think, uh, at her university and did an expose on it. Wouldn't she have the skills to be able to research and understand what it took to get into one of those hard to reach journalism jobs?
1: Yeah, that's very true. But, you know, a lot of people go into industries that are tough to break into on a wing and a prayer, right? So I don't know. I think the bottom line is if it makes sense for you to do something that seems beneath you, but could potentially make you a lot of really great contacts, I think it's a good thing to do. It can be a really good use of your time.
0: Would it be a good use of your time to go to the interview unprepared?
1: Okay, this is the thing that drives me so crazy about this. So imagine that she was showing up to like the New York Times for an interview. And I don't know who the current editor-in-chief of the New York Times is, but she walks into that guy's office and he's like, you'd never heard of me before today. And she's like, nope. You, do you read the New York Times? And she's like, nope. I mean, that would just be like a, okay, can you please leave? What are you doing? Wasting my time kind of thing. And I get that she's not coming to Vogue, or sorry, to Runway, to to write. She's coming there to just like fetch coffee. So she probably, or maybe she didn't think it was as important to be like up on the content. But I mean, I think it's clear that Miranda Priestley expects somebody who's got some sort of familiarity with the fashion industry. Like for example, there's a scene in the movie where she takes a phone call from somebody who works for Dolce and Gabbana and she asks them how to spell it, which I mean, it's just like a cute little joke for the movie, but I am like the least fashion savvy person on planet earth. And even I know how to spell Dolce and Gabbana. And like I've heard of them and I know that they are a thing in the fashion world. So it just seems like she's being almost intentionally obtuse. And just refusing to even put a tiny amount of effort into getting this job. If she's going to bother to go there and apply for it, put in some effort and like pick up a copy of runway, you know, flip through it, get an idea of what's going on in the fashion world. If you want to work in that industry.
0: I don't know. So I have had the opportunity to interview a lot of people over the years. And some like, there are two different types of people who show up in the interviews. And I think, a lot of them really prepare. And my company is huge. People go look at our website and try to figure out something about who we are. And they're, when people have done that and they come into the interview and they start talking about us, except they're wrong. Like they don't actually understand what my slice of the company does or what my role that I'm offering to them or that I'm interviewing them for is all about. It's kind of off-putting. Right. It sort of seems like you are not very good at filtering information and determining what is relevant and what is not relevant. And instead, you're just parroting back what you read somewhere in order to make me feel like you've done a good job preparing. But instead, it makes me doubt your qualifications.
1: But how does that? So you said there's two categories of people. I assume the other is people who don't seem prepared in that same way. How do those people do with you?
0: So there's a difference between not being prepared and not trying to like show off your preparedness. Right. Right. You should know enough about what we do to be able to speak comfortably and competently about what's going on and be able to ask reasonable questions about who we are. I think a lot of times everybody forgets what an interview is all about. It's about both parties determining if it's the right fit. Everybody usually thinks about the employer deciding whether or not they're going to offer a position to a candidate, but the candidate should also be evaluating whether or not they're going to accept a position that an employer offers right? That is a huge part of the process. Do we expect employers to know every last thing about what somebody else has done when they walk into the interview room? I think we're kidding ourselves. Half the time, I suspect many employers or individuals who are in an interview have done limited preparation. Uh, Hopefully they've at least read a resume, but that, that may be all. In some cases, they're probably reading the resume as the interview's going. How is that any different than what the candidate has going on?
1: I do think one you're just ignoring the reality that oftentimes employers just have more power than potential employees, right?
0: Well, most people aren't as good as I am. I mean, I get it. I get it.
1: <laughs> I mean, as a potential employee, you're someone who is either like trying to get out of a crappy job or who doesn't have a job at all. You probably feel more of a sense of desperation than an employer. In general, I will say that there's been a big shift in that power balance over the last few years in the post-COVID era where people feel like they can be much pickier and choosier. But I think it's just as bad for the interviewer to not have read somebody's resume before they come in or to have done like a quick Google search of them. So I think research is important on both sides for sure. But most of the time, at least in my experience, you're kidding yourself if you feel like the employer doesn't have a little bit of the upper hand they're already doing the thing that you claim to want to be doing. So they've definitely got a, a slightly bigger share of the power pie, I think.
0: And I think that's what's, what's kind of weird. A lot of times people who are interviewing for a job don't exactly know what it is. And they're using the interview process to learn about that. I don't know. I As an interviewer, when I go into the situation, I don't expect anybody to know more about me than I do about them. Uh, and by me, I mean my me and my company and my role in the position that I'm representing here. Um, and I'm hopeful that other people feel the same way and approach it with that because what the hell, it should be an even playing field.
1: Yeah, it should be. But again, I'm, I feel like in reality, it's often not. But I don't know. The people who get really puffed up and happy to hear someone, to hear an interviewee, like parroting your resume back to you, like I Googled you and I know all this stuff about you, I mean, it, it's kind of just an ego stroking exercise, right? So it's you probably don't want to work for the kind of person who's going to be like real jazzed, that you know all these facts about them. They're probably a little bit uh, egotistical. But I think it definitely is important to have done your basic amount of homework to know. like I, I think the the analogy about if she were interviewing at The New York Times is very apt. If she were going in there and she was like, don't read your paper, don't know who any of you are, don't like care about current events and what's going on in the world today, there's no way she's getting that job. And I think the same should be true of most jobs. You should have a general idea of the kind of industry that you're getting into and some level of interest in what they do. Now, maybe if you're going to be like a, a janitor or something, like that's less important. But for any kind of job where you're going to be like helping to generate content which at some level andy is
0: no no she's (laughs) merely an assistant
1: she is but she also has a lot of responsibility for like the way that runway magazine presents itself to the world right like knowledge if dolce and gabbana calls on the phone and she's like sorry i don't know who you are can you spell your name that reflects poorly on Miranda and the choices that she makes about who works well, in her That's office. not how
0: Runway presents themselves to the world. That's, that's how Runway presents themselves to the handful of people who call Miranda Priestley's office.
1: But those people talk, right? Those people are going to like say, hey, I just called Miranda Priestley's office and they had no idea who Dolce and Gabbana are. Like what is going on over there, right? There's going to be chatter about that. Too much of that kind of thing definitely could have an effect on the way that the magazine is perceived, at least among like close knit circles, and then that filters out. So I don't think it's unreasonable for her to to say that she really made a mistake by not doing some basic, basic level of research. Oh, she
0: should definitely do some research. That, that's for sure. What about the way that she dresses, right? So does she need to fit the mold or whatever, right? Like Miranda tells her she doesn't have any style. And I think she disagrees because she did show up in something that she thought was nice and professional and appropriate for the moment. Does she need to immediately jump in and start looking like the other people around the office?
1: I just have such mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I get it, right? At any office, the first people that you see when you walk in, those people reflect on some level what you can expect out of this this office, right? Whatever it might be. Like if you were to walk into an architectural firm and the building was falling down and dilapidated, you probably wouldn't want to hire those architects to build your building or your house or whatever. And the same is true of a fashion magazine. If the people who work there are walking around in like, I don't know, really frumpy looking clothes and nobody seems to care about fashion at all, you're going to be a little skeptical about the quality of the products that they're going to put out because those people don't seem like they're into fashion. And you want people who are into fashion to be putting out a fashion magazine. So I understand where Miranda and the other people in the office who criticize her wardrobe, I get where they're coming from. Like she's she is the face of the industry in a minor way, and she's basically saying to them, I don't actually care about what we're producing here. So I think it's not unreasonable to expect her to spiff up the wardrobe a little bit.
0: I think you're right. And that brings us into our next clip where we hear Uh, Andy getting dressed down a little bit for her inability to dive into the fashion world with what she brings to the office on a daily basis.
2: You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. You're also blithely unaware of the fact that, in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers, and then it uh, filtered down through the department stores, and then trickled on down into some tragic, casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin however that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs and it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room
0: man she's so good
1: she is so good that it's is... not
0: lapis it's cerulean
1: <laughs> so that is uh, just one of the most famous beaches from the film. Everybody remembers the cerulean speech, uh, which I actually did know the color cerulean because of Crayola, right? We all had cerulean crayons in our boxes as kids. I don't know if it's still a color in Crayola's toolkit, but in any event, uh, that is my experience with the color cerulean. So I think the first thing to talk about here is her comment that what Andy thinks the sweater says about her is that she takes herself too seriously to care about what she wears. Is
0: that is that what caused this whole outfit you're wearing today to happen, Carla?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm trying so hard to tell people that I don't care about how I look. No, I to me, that is such a ridiculous thing for Miranda to say, and it just shows how out of touch she is with, like, normal people. I don't think anybody selects their clothing In an effort to tell people that they don't care, people want to look attractive.
0: I think there may be times, there are occasionally times when people are trying to give off that I don't care look and they're trying really hard to show that they don't care. Yeah. But not what you're wearing to the office every day.
1: Yeah. No, there's like a scene in, uh, what is it? The social network where Mark Zuckerberg shows up to some meeting in a robe. And that is clearly an effort to tell them like, screw you. I don't, you're not important enough for me to get dressed. But barring something like that, (laughs) I don't think most people are thinking that at all, right? People just want to look nice. They want to be as attractive as they can be. And they want to do it for not an insane amount of money. They want to be comfortable. Like these are the things on people's minds when they are selecting their clothing. No one is thinking, I'm going to try to look really hard. Like I just don't care about the fashion industry. I think that's just so out of touch and insane.
0: Yeah. And she's hating on her for getting this out of the, you know, casual corner bargain basement bin or whatever. I think she's really pretty harsh about that when in reality, I suspect Andy's wearing clothes that she thinks are appropriate for the moment at this time, right? They're, they're what she has in her wardrobe. She's right out of college, probably isn't getting paid a ton. And she's wearing things that seem reasonable for an office.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I'm sure she's just trying her best with what she's got, right? She knows she's not a fashionista by any stretch, but she's trying to wear the clothes that she thinks looks best on her. And, you know, she's trying to appear, she's not showing up in like jeans and a spaghetti strap top and flip flops. Like she's trying to fit into kind of what she thinks is office attire. So it's not like she's just giving a big, she's not showing up in a robe like Mark Zuckerberg, right? She is attempting to look presentable and somewhat professional and in most offices across America, she would be totally fine. Like no one would care very much, but she's working in the fashion industry. So she's getting dressed down for how she dresses.
0: So Miranda is hating on her for, you know, this choice that she's made that she thinks exempts her from all of what's going on in the fashion world is it trickled its way down from the high fashion industry to what common folk wear and what she could buy at any department store or any basic little shop. And I feel like Miranda's super harsh about that when the fact that her fashion has such an impact on the world like this uh, is what allows her to have any power in the first place. It allows her to have this wealth and, and, you know, huge income and fame.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. She's disdainful of the very thing that has put her in the position that she's in, right? If there weren't lots of, like, lesser clothes manufacturers and, you know, things like casual corner or whatever they might be that were copying what the the bigger fashion houses were doing, the fashion industry would be way smaller than it is, right? And she would have way less influence than she does. So the fact that there are people, you know, kind of eating the scraps off her table, that's what makes her as successful as she is. And for her to not recognize that and to be Haughty about it, I think, is just again very out of touch.
0: So, there are millions of dollars spent and countless jobs to help make this cerulean sweater. How do we feel about that?
1: So, although I am no fan of fashion and have, don't have like a lot of love for the fashion industry, that's for sure, I'm not, I don't think it's evil. I think it's a huge multi billion dollar industry and people are going to spend their money in some way, right? And it does create a lot, a lot of jobs. And that's unquestionably a good thing for the economy. Also, we ultimately have to wear something like I wouldn't be happy if we all walked around in burlap sacks.
0: Oh, come on. You could wear burlap (laughs) with the best of them.
1: It sounds really scratchy. It doesn't sound super comfy. But I mean, like the bottom line is we're going to put something on our backs, right? And I'm happy to have like, fun, colorful, you know, clothes that we feel good in.
0: Yeah. I love the idea of there being new concepts and new designs and choices and a variety of things. The world would be boring if it were so bland, but having all these different options out there just creates a a wonderful palette for us to see. It makes life more interesting.
1: Yeah. I don't think the fashion industry is inherently evil and I'm happy that we have like fun clothes on planet earth. It might be going too far in in the direction of like wastefulness and consumerism. But on the whole, I don't think we should scrap the fashion industry entirely.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the whole idea that what Anne Hathaway is wearing in this scene was basically put together by the very people in that room. And whether or not things like that exist elsewhere in society, I think if if we go back a few decades and look in the food industry as an example, everything, everything was going on a trajectory of low fat. <laughs> fat was bad. It's unhealthy to be overweight. And usually people who are overweight are carrying too much fat. Therefore, we should eat foods with less fat in them. I think there were some scientists who came up with that. And there were people in rooms just like Miranda Priestley's office all around the country in food product manufacturers who came up with the idea of we need to push low-fat products to the public, and everybody started buying them, even though they ended up being terrible for them, you know, packed with extra sugars and all kinds of other stuff to still make the food taste good. And it's a perfect example of how there's a handful of folks in some places who do make a lot of decisions about what ultimately becomes available on store shelves for the average consumer to pick up and incorporate into their lives.
1: Yeah, I think primarily Snackwell was to blame for that whole trend.
0: Oh, but I did love their commercials. <laughs>
1: the devil's food cake cookies were, they did not suck. Um, but I think they had all kinds of like weird chemicals in them to help them taste better because they didn't put any like actual, there was definitely like no fat in them. I think mean, they were advertised as fat free. Who knows what went into those things, but there are a few of them like lingering somewhere in my body chemistry. Cause I definitely ate more than one of them.
0: You got some forever snackwell's chemicals,
1: probably, probably. Uh, yeah, i That is a perfect example of this like trickle down thing that Miranda is talking about, right? There's like a handful of people at the top who make these decisions about what they think is going to work to like in terms of marketing it to consumers. And that's it. Like that's the big push. And all of a sudden, everyone is following these these trends. So, yeah, it's definitely not unique to the fashion industry, that sort of top down um, structure is prevalent. And I think a lot of different design industries and certainly with food. So it's, I think a good thing for us to be more aware of than we are because as was the case with the whole fat sugar carbs thing, it was not the right (laughs) decision. And now cerulean is a lovely color and maybe like pushing cerulean down on the masses was no big deal.
0: It's probably what started the most recent war.
1: Probably. Yeah, that's it. That's what's causing the Russian Ukrainian war right now. Um, no, like in all seriousness, sometimes those decisions can be terrible, and sometimes those decisions are motivated by profit and not the best interests of, of human beings. So it's important to be aware of that top down structure and try to take better control of it when it's steering the world in a poor direction. You know,
0: as we're talking about this, I think maybe it's a little bit more muted than it would have been decades ago with the rise of social media and so many platforms for individuals to get their voice out there. And you could build a small following pretty easily with less financial backing and have more choice out there.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, although I don't, I feel like Cerulean is still pretty popular today. I don't know. (laughs) Um,
0: I, that's put on my christmas list carla i'd like a cerulean a cerulean, a lumpy cerulean sweater
1: i'll knit you a lumpy cerulean blue sweater I you're the that. best yeah uh so i think we can go ahead and dive into our next clip where we hear Anne hathaway kind of complaining about the fashion industry and all of the pressure that she's facing at work she is not happy unless everyone
2: around her is panicked nauseous or suicidal and the clackers just worship her the who they call them clackers the sound that their stilettos make in the marble lobby, it's like, clack, 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 clack. Ugh. They all act like they're curing cancer or something.
1: The <laughs> amount of time and
2: energy that these people spend on these insignificant minute details, and for what? So that tomorrow they can spend another $300,000 reshooting something that was probably fine to begin with to sell people things they don't need. Good.
0: So who is this mysterious they that she's talking about calling them clackers, right? Is it just her?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I can't
0: imagine the rest of Runway being like, uh-huh, there's them clackers out there.
1: I, re- I remember from the book that it was like a common thing. I, I don't know if that's one of the details that's based on um, the author's actual experience working for Vogue or, or not. But she she made it clear that that was like what everyone Called them. I think that's what they called themselves. Like the women who wear the stilettos and.
0: But don't all the women wear the stilettos? <laughs> yeah. I thought it sounded like that was basically a requirement. The only non-clackers might have been Andy. The yeah, Stanley Andy, Tucci. and maybe the men in the accounting department or something.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a fair question, but I'll have to call up my good buddy Lauren Weisenberger and ask her.
0: Are you sure that's even her name?
1: It's it's Weis, Weisberger or Weisenberger. I'm honestly not sure which
0: one. Are you even right on the first name?
1: <laughs> yes, it's Lauren for sure.
0: Okay. I just want to make sure you guys were actually close. <laughs> so there's these people are acting like they're curing cancer when instead they're peddling a product and they're spending exorbitant amounts of money to go make sure that their magazine looks perfect in a way that the typical reader would have no ability to discern. How do we feel about that?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean... It's definitely frustrating to think about all of those dollars going towards something so frivolous when there are people in the world who are wanting for the most basic necessities, right? Like clean water, daily meals, a roof over their head, mosquito netting, right? It hurts your heart to think about that a little bit. But at the same time, one, we're all guilty of it, right? We all have things in our life that are not just pure basic necessities. Yeah.
0: All your cerulean stuff.
1: I mean, yeah, that whole cerulean sweater collect, I mean, the lumpy blue sweater, cerulean collection that I have is pretty expensive. Uh, no, but I mean, we all have things that we don't need for sure. Right. We're, we're more than guilty of that. I'm guessing most people listening to this are more than guilty of that. Um, so it's hard to, to point the finger at like one particular company or industry and say like, you're the worst about it. Um, I also think people are gonna spend their money on something, right? And so like one great example of this, if you think about really extravagant um, fundraising events, right? Like the Met Gala, is the Met Gala even for fundraising or is it just for people to show off their fashion? I don't know. Anyway. We should
0: not be doing an episode about this if we don't (laughs) know more than we actually do about the Met Gala, but too late.
1: (laughs) So in any event, we all know what we're talking about, right? Like really fancy fundraising events where you pay a bunch of money to go to like some nice ballroom and you're supposed to wear a fancy dress and eat a nice meal and hear some keynote speaker talk. They are for the purpose of raising money, but it also costs a lot of money to feed all of those people, to rent out that big ballroom, to pay the keynote speaker to show up, um, to like have the nice decorations, to promote the event. Like all of these things cost a lot, a lot of dollars and we could feed more mouths and buy more mosquito netting if we just put everybody's dollars towards those necessities instead of towards the fancy event. But then people would not donate the money, right? You've got to give some people just like a a fancy, like a carrot. You've got to have some incentive to get them interested in being involved with your cause. So That is a very common phenomenon. Humans, we just inherently are kind of sucky when it comes to giving our money away. We want something back in return, right? So it's not bad or evil, I think, to throw fundraisers that are like that because in the long run, you will get more money for your cause than if you just walked around knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, we're going to buy a bunch of mosquito netting. Please give me money. No one is going to say yes to that or a far like lower percentage of people will say yes to that than to the Met Gala or whatever.
0: And for those of you who don't know, Carla's insistence on mosquito netting, I think it's been deemed one of the most cost-effective ways to save the most lives to prevent malaria transmission in parts of the world uh, who struggle with that today, right?
1: Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh,
0: if we go back to the $300,000 for the photo shoot, I definitely don't think there's anything wrong with that to to go spend some additional money because what else would happen with those funds, right? They're creating jobs. Which gives more opportunities for a lot of other people to do things that they want to do. And I think that's a wonderful thing for our communities and our economy. And that, that money that we're seeing is being wasted. If it weren't wasted, where would it go? Into the hands of the the owners of the magazine, or a bonus for some of the employees? Are we are we ripping on Miranda Priestley for not buying enough of those malaria mosquito nets? If if we're not, then. It seems pretty silly to be ripping on her for wasting $300,000 because she believes it's actually what's necessary for a quality product. Uh, And without that, then the whole magazine wouldn't exist in the first place.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we had to point the finger everywhere if we're going to point the finger at them, right? All kinds of luxury products of any type, including, you know, fancy gadgets, like the kind of microphones that we're talking in today, right? These are not like critical necessary things. So if we're going to point the finger at them, We got to point it at a lot of other places too. So I agree. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, and it's a a thorny ethical issue. But at the same time, we feel confident that that 300k would not go to helping the neediest people in the world if it weren't going towards another photo shoot. So if they're going to spend the money on the magazine, whatever, reshoot your
0: shoot, (laughs) I guess. Well, so that's the ethics of them spending the money. But what if we think about what they're spending it for? They're spending this money to help convince other people to buy stuff that they don't need. High fashion is not inexpensive, right? It is a costly thing to purchase. I wish there were a study out there or a bunch of data we could go fetch that would tell us what percentage of the people who are buying these clothes should be, right? How many people are buying expensive fashionable items that they just can't actually afford or that it's a real stretch for them and that they should be using some of those funds to to save for other things in their life. Um, does that change the ethics?
1: I think it changes the... Mil- well, I think it makes the fashion industry worse from a different perspective, right? Because what they're trying to do is make us feel bad about ourselves. That's so true. Yeah, they're trying to make us feel like our bodies aren't good enough the way that they are and they need to be like nipped and tucked and hidden in these you know dresses that fit just so um they're just they're trying to make us feel bad about our hair and our skin and I mean everything about a human body that like exists they want to make it better in some way right but the way it smells perfume all that stuff so I do think from that perspective from that angle the fashion industry is definitely a worse thing for planet earth than like Apple churning out their their fancy luxury gadgets because those aren't those aren't designed to make us feel bad about ourselves
0: well there's a lot of rare earth mineral mining for those so that's let's true. let's be kind of Mother earth in all kinds of ways
1: <laughs> that's true but at least Apple's not trying to make me feel ugly all the time which is what fashion magazines are genuinely designed to do right they're trying to show you like this is what the human body should be and if you're not living up to that Buy these products so that you can do it, and then you too will be as lovely as the the women you see in these pages. That is literally what the beauty industry and the fashion industry is built on. So from that perspective, yeah, I think they're pretty crappy. All
0: right, well, let's move on to our final clip, which kind of summarizes the overarching theme of the movie a little bit, right? It's it, outside of the the entertaining conflict between uh, Anne Hathaway and Emily Blunt and Meryl Streep. I think. I think this is really the central conflict of the whole movie.
1: Yeah. So let me set it up a little bit for us. So Andy has been selected to go to Paris for this big like fashion event. Um, And Emily, who is the more senior assistant to Miranda, was previously in line to do that job to go to Paris with her. And she was crazy excited about it. Primarily, I think, because she was going to get a lot of, like, nice clothes to wear there. But also, she just wanted to go and see Paris and, like, meet, you know, famous designers, models, etc. So, Emily is kind of being overshadowed by Andy at work. Andy's started to, like, really step up her game and is doing well. And Miranda chooses her to go to Paris instead of Emily. And when Andy is telling her boyfriend, Nate, about this, he looks at her and was like, what do you mean you're going to Paris? I thought Emily was really excited about that. And she gets kind of frustrated and was like, don't give me a hard time about this. So she sort of like storms out and Nate is chasing after her. And this is the exchange. Hey, Andy, 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 what the hell is wrong with you? didn't have a choice, okay? I Miranda asked me and I, I couldn't know. say no. I know, that's I, your
2: answer for everything lately. I didn't oh, have a choice. Hey, like this job was forced hey, on you. Like I you don't make it, these decisions okay? yourself.
1: You're mad because I work late all the time and because I missed your birthday party, and I'm sorry. Oh, come on,
2: what what am I for? You,
1: you you hate runway and Miranda and you think fashion is stupid. You've made that clear.
2: Andy, I make port wine reductions all day. I'm not exactly in the Peace Corps. You know I wouldn't care if you were out there pole dancing all night, as long as you did it with a little integrity. You used to say this was just a job. You used to make fun of the runway girls. What happened? Now now you've become one of them. That's hey, absurd. That's okay, that's fine. Just own up to it. And then we can stop pretending like we have anything in common anymore.
0: Did she become a clacker?
1: I think she became a clacker. She's wearing stilettos in that scene, so.
0: Yeah, I could hear her walking away at the beginning. <laughs>
1: So there's lots of stuff to dig into here, right? This is kind of a meaty scene. But I think the central theme of the movie is it comes down to this phrase, I didn't have a choice, and Nate kind of calling her out on it and saying, but you do have a choice. Like, you, you chose to work there. I think this is so common among workers today that we just get, like, in the weeds of the day-to-day. And especially... If we're not like the head honcho, if we have anyone above us who's making decisions, we just kind of do what is asked of us and forget that, one, we have a choice to like argue with our boss if we think something is not being done in a good way, in an appropriate way, in an ethical way, whatever it might be. Or two, to just up and leave, right? That is always an option that people have. We are not prisoners. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, she definitely does need to take responsibility. She obviously wanted to succeed, but she should probably step back periodically to determine if success is aligned with her values and her long-term goals. She, she certainly has changed and evolved as part of working at runway and being more in this world of high fashion and in this cutthroat space where she works for someone who is not particularly nice or respectful of anybody. And it's almost impossible to do that every day and not get some of it on you. Right. I think many people would would struggle not to parrot back some of what they see in their, in their personal life and in the rest of their world, which is why he seems so upset about them not being on the same page about stuff. But you're right. You have choice in your jobs. Not everybody. If you're in a job like Andy is, you definitely have choice. Yeah,
1: right? for sure. She's got options, including leaving, which, spoiler alert, that's what she does at the very end of the film. She decides that this isn't the life that she wants. I will say in the microcosm of like this specific decision of going to Paris instead of Emily, I don't think she did a damn thing wrong. She's doing well at the office. Yeah, she didn't
0: sabotage Emily's work performance or anything like that. She just seemed to connect better with Miranda and demonstrate that she had a lot of value and was someone that Miranda should count on.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think of... Like say you had two authors who were really good friends right and one of them like has a lot of success sells their work for a really high price and the other one doesn't is the author who sold their work supposed to just say oh well my friend hasn't sold his work yet so sorry publishing company i don't actually want to do a deal with you that's insane right like everybody's on their own path also by the way Andy and Emily are not best buds at all. Like Emily is really mean to Andy 99% of the time. So it just seems crazy to me that she's not allowed to have success just because someone else is like in a similar position to her.
0: This kind of makes me think back in my own career where uh, in in 2008, I was afforded the opportunity to participate in a leadership development program type thing uh, along with a few dozen of my colleagues which the thing eventually got shut down because 2008 was not an ideal time to be investing in that sort of thing in most businesses. <laughs> uh, but I had a colleague who ultimately got laid off in late 2008, who was a terrible employee and she was more senior than I was. And she was really offended at a handful of people with a little bit less experience than she had being invited to participate in this leadership development program. And I like she went to a few of us and was sort of like, "I can't believe you're gonna do that instead of letting me do this. I, I feel like you're just we're friends, you're you're doing this to me. And it really wasn't the case. It was just one of us had to, was invested in doing well in our job, and the other of us was not. And even if she had been super invested in doing well in her job and it the the chips landed where they may. Uh, it wasn't as though we were doing anything to the detriment of each other. It was just the reality of performance and growth and everybody has goals and you shouldn't just bend over backwards to to halt your own career growth in order to to give that to somebody else who um, you're not competing with. You're just You're just peers.
1: No, I tend to agree. And I certainly don't think you did anything wrong by going through that leadership program just because somebody who had a few more years of experience, than you didn't go through it or wasn't selected to go through it. And by
0: the way, she's a terrible employee. And when she got <laughs> laid off in late 2008, it is like nothing happened.
1: Yeah. I mean... Nice lady, though. Yeah. Well, everybody has strengths and weaknesses, right? And sometimes you may be in a job that's not the best fit for you. And I feel like I've, I've been through that. And a lot of people have been through that where you're just in a role that's, you know, it doesn't play to your strengths very well. So... Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with other people rising up and, and doing well. And if you're the one who's getting kind of left behind and not doing as well, maybe you can get inspiration from that other person as to how you can do better in that role. Or maybe you think about, um, you know, doing a slightly different role. I mean, there's all kinds of options. We've got, we've got choices, right? That's the theme of, theme of the movie. So, yeah, I don't think uh, Andy's doing anything wrong by taking this position.
0: Not at all. All right, let's talk about somebody else who might be doing something wrong. There is a lot of internet hate for Nate. (laughs) What do you think about that? Is he a terrible boyfriend? Is he an unsupportive partner?
1: Yeah, lots of people on the internet complain about Nate and think that, you know, just support your girlfriend. She's working on her career. Like, be more caring and, you know, don't get so upset when she doesn't show up for your birthday party. And in this clip, he's downplaying that he was upset about that. But he was genuinely pissed on the day of his birthday. Like he, he did seem very hurt and upset that she missed his birthday.
0: Well, let's hold on a minute. I, I think it's reasonably disappointed when somebody fails to follow through on plans that you made together that you thought were important. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're like upset for life and you're never going to get over it. I think it's totally appropriate to be frustrated in the moment and even to allow that to come out and be public to other people. But it doesn't mean that you can't forgive someone. And, and that's clearly what happened here. He, he said, come on, am I four? Yeah, I was mad, but I'm over it. That's not what is, is really driving my thoughts on these things.
1: No, that's that's totally fair. And I think it is fair to have your feelings hurt when the person you love just can't show up for the things that matter to you. And I, I get that, I get that. Um, I generally am on Nate's side, to be clear. I think he is not being necessarily unsupportive
0: he made her that grilled cheese sandwich
1: he did and apparently it was a really good grilled cheese sandwich and who wouldn't want that in their life now i don't think he's awful i think he's pointing out that she has kind of gotten more sucked into the world of high fashion than he thought she would than andy thought she would right i mean the very last clip we played for you guys was andy talking about like just how meaningless all of this is and, you know, these people act like they're curing cancer. None of this really matters. Um, And she's clearly turned away from that. I do think Andy could have had a much more practical approach to her job and better communication with Nate, right? Like, I think it would have been great for Andy to say, look, what I've understood is that if I can stick this job out for one year and a winter, slash Miranda Priestley will write me this glowing letter of recommendation that will be my golden ticket into any job I want that's like in journalism, publishing, whatever. And that is a extremely valuable opportunity for me, and I'm not going to let it pass me by. So I'm going to go all in on this. I'm going to look the part. That means I'm going to, you know, wear clothes that seem kind of crazy and super expensive to you, but it's important for this job and I'm going to do it. That also means that I'm going to be working really long hours and we're not going to get to see each other very much for this one whole year. And I know 12 months is a long time, but in the grand scheme, we really love each other. We want to build a life together. This is important to me. Like, can you back me up for this one year? If they'd had like open, honest conversations like that, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have found a way to make this work. But instead, Andy just seems to like get really excited and into this world of high fashion, and not you know stay true to her goal of what she wanted to be a journalist and she does seem to kind of like dust Nate off and not uh not be the person that she was when they first started dating so I get why he's a little upset
0: well Andy's at a time in her life where she is vulnerable is not the right word but she's open to a lot of influence right she's in her early 20s just after college. She's not fully formed as an adult and who she's going to be. She, and, and are we ever, right? We're always open and, and subject to new changes and forces in our life. And yes, this job has definitely changed her. I think if they had a stronger relationship or were more invested in their relationship, they would have just worked their way through it. They would have talked about it just like you said. And the fact that Nate isn't on board with where she's gone is what happens sometimes. Even if they were fully invested in this relationship, He may have concluded that the way that she evolved and changed as a person was not what was right for him. It wasn't the relationship that he wanted to be a part of for the long haul. And that's okay. That happens sometimes in life. Um, Hopefully people are giving it an honest effort if they thought it was worthwhile in the first place. But in the end, it may not work out. People change, and sometimes they don't change and grow together, but they grow apart. And acknowledging that and communicating that while often kind of difficult and may feel very hurtful is probably better for both of them.
1: Yeah. No, I tend to agree. I don't think, I just think both of them are being really poor communicators and you know, it's done for plot and I get that. And we have the tension between the two of them, but in real life, I think they should have been able to have honest conversations about what they really want in long-term is this job, like genuinely turning Andy into a glamazon who is you know doesn't care about anything other than fashion um or is it something that she's just you know yeah she thinks the clothes are fun but it's not like who she wants to be she ultimately wants to to be this journalist um and she's just kind of paying her dues to get through this year so yeah they for sure could have worked it out and i don't think nate is like an evil guy
0: how long of a window would you tolerate me getting deep into the world of high fashion (laughs)
1: Six minutes.
0: Six minutes. Okay, <laughs> I will choose those minutes wisely.
1: Yeah, see that you do. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us, guys. We hope you uh, had fun kicking it back to 2006 and talking about The Devil Wears Prada.
0: Go watch it again. It's a great movie. Really I enjoy is it.
1: Great, yeah. And uh, Meryl Streep, Emily Blunt, Anne Hathaway, Stanley Tucci. By the way, there's an SNL sketch called The Tucci Gang about just like the love for Stanley Tucci. Highly recommend that as well. It's a good one. Tucci King, Tucci King, Tucci King. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.
2: Take care.